0: Welcome to Crossroads Church in Rowlett. We're so glad you're here. Join us here for our weekly sermons or visit crossroadsrowlett.org for more information. I tell you what, man, the last couple of weeks has been incredible, but there is no place like home. Uh, thank you so much for praying for our team. 14 of us went to Uganda and spent about 10 days there and got back Friday night. I will tell you, um, and I told the earlier service, I am still working on jet lag and sleep deprivation, so I don't have as heavy of a filter as I usually do, Um, so I'm just going to warn you in advance, so I'm just going to start this way, the devil is a butthole, so um, um, (laughs) you can quote me on that, I'm fine with it. I'm going to tell you this. God did unbelievable, amazing things here. God did unbelievable, amazing things where we were, and that guy tried to steal the story. We had an incredible experience where God did unbelievable things. It was supposed to take our team a a long time, about 30 hours, to get back here on our return trip. Instead, and I made note of this, it took this. Two buses, or two, two, two cars, six buses, three airplanes, 14 confiscated passports in a foreign country. We were a people with no identity for a time. We stayed in two hotels, which sounds nicer than it was. The first one had more bugs than people in it. And almost 72 hours to get back home. And our team showed up here still praising and bragging on God because we're not going to let Satan steal the victory. <laughs> Last Sunday between this church right here in Rowlett, Texas, and what we were doing in Uganda, we had seven different teachers preaching in six different churches, accumulating overall to thousands of people that God used our church to communicate truth with. Our team had 14 members, each and every one of them, taught powerfully in a variety of groups in Africa. They shared testimonies and biblical teaching about marriage, about parenting, and the gospel over and over and over again. We had a crew that was building a home with a paid construction crew for a sweet woman named Rose there in that place in Uganda. And at the end of it, not only did we get a chance to teach and pour our lives into pastors and their wives, and families, and believers, and church leaders. At the end of it, I got to experience something that in my years of ministry, I've never seen like this. And by the time we left Africa, there were 466 souls that had given their life to Jesus Christ. I was telling somebody between services, I was spending a lot of time with pastors and their wives, so our hope was they're believers. Um, Our youth team was with a lot of non-believers. And they would get done with a session, and they would text us, 75 people gave their lives to Jesus. 100 people gave their lives to Jesus. 38 people gave their lives to Jesus. And I was like, can you save some for us? (laughs) I thought they were going to save all of Uganda before we got out of our pastor session. It was amazing. We had leaders. I mean, our team, including our youngest members, every single one of them contributed heavily to what was going on. And we got to preach the gospel in so many places. We even got to go on top of a mountain. They called it a hill because they lie there. It was not a hill. It was a mountain that we scaled. Every member of our team scaled this mountain to meet an indigenous group of people at the top of a mountain and share the gospel with them. A group of people that literally in the DNA of their civilization is that they have no value and no worth Because they have been run out of every home they have ever had by their own people. And when I got up there, we didn't get much warning a lot of times. Somebody just went, preach. And the first thing that came to mind was Psalm 139. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And we preached and we shared the gospel. And I asked, I said, does anybody want to surrender their life to Jesus? And this is in the adult group. And the first one that came forward was a young man, probably in his late 20s. And he, he just walked up to me and fell on his knees. And I broke and it was amazing. And this was happening all over the place. It was an incredible time. And I just want to say this because I want to recommit our church to this over and over and over again. Um, if you are looking for a church that will one day maybe fund missions but stop going, this is not going to be a good church fit for you because we will never give up on being an active part of the mission of Jesus Christ. We will be missional here in this place that God has blessed us to serve, and we will be missional to the ends of the earth because we have been commanded to go. And as long as we're drawing breath, let's commit together that we will never move from missional mode to maintenance mode in this church. Can we agree to that, church? Come on. Jesus has a plan to change the world, and I don't know about you, but I wanna be a part of it. I know you do too, I would tell you if you're a person that maybe has considered going on a trip before, first, be on mission where you live, but second, if you've come up with an idea, maybe maybe you feel like there's obstacles to going, there will always be an obstacle to going, but there will always be a bigger blessing in fighting over that obstacle, and so I would encourage you to consider going on one of the trips in the future. I want to say this also, um, and, and I will tell you what I told the first service, I had all kinds of plans and aspirations, I started working on this sermon before we left, and I was like, I'll finish it when we're in Uganda, and that did not happen. Um... Uh, We barely had power or internet connection or anything like that. It was very difficult to work on. Then I was like, I'll work on it on the airplane. And that did not happen either. So I am equally as excited as you are to see what God's going to say this morning. So. Uh, we're just going to be in this together, but I don't, I don't want to miss an opportunity to celebrate something. We have a young man in our church; he's working down in the kids area right now. We got to celebrate him in person in the first service. But I just want to tell you this real quick: we have an internship program at our church, and while uh, we'd love at our internship to keep everybody here forever, the reason we train and equip is so that we can send out missionaries from our church. Um, and we have a young man, Parker Shivak, who is going to. Yeah, there he goes. We've been able to connect him with a church out in West Texas, and he is gonna be leaving here in just a matter of days. To go and serve, continuing his internship and growing and helping be a blessing in another church. As much as it has saddens me to see one of my young favorite, amazing young men go off, I am incredibly got- glad that we are sending him out as a as a missionary to go and serve the Lord in the calling that God has on his life. So when you see Parker, or if you know Parker, text him, hug him, encourage him, and be praying for him. And then we've also told him over and over again, sucker, this is your home. You cannot escape us. We will always be. Your your family, we love you. So, uh, I just want to share that with you guys. Let's pray, and then we're going to continue. Uh, God, thanks for today. I ask you to speak, God, to us through your word and challenge us today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Anybody ever had an eye exam in here? Yep. A lot of pressure when you go to an eye exam in there. Like it just feels like a very weird experience. I heard a pastor talk about this, and it, I thought, man, I really resonated with me because you go in there and you're trying your hardest to do a good job. But I don't know about you. How many of you have horrible vision? Yep, so you go in there, and they put the little chart up. You know what I'm talking about, the little eye chart, and they go read that, and we all do the same thing because we get excited. We're like, E! (laughs) Because we know we get the first one, right? Like, we can get that one right, and they're like, yeah. (laughs) They're like, thanks, Skippy. Go down about five rows, and you're like, well, there's only 26 letters. Uh, Surely I can guess a couple of these, Um, but it's difficult, and then eventually, you know, they go into that other thing. They're like, which one's better, number one or number two? number one or number two, number two or number one, and you're like, they're the same. <laughs> I don't know what you're trying to pull, American Association of Eyeglass People. I don't know what your thing's called, but it is a weird test, but the cool part is at the end, they finally give you contacts or glasses or whatever, and you put them on, and you notice things you didn't notice before. Anybody ever had that experience? Like, you're in your house, and you're looking at your wife going, was there always a window there? Like, was that there? <laughs> in our house before, and they're like, yeah, that was cool, Uh, you you know, leaves on trees, that's the thing people say, like you, you see it, and you're like, oh, I thought that was just like a big head of broccoli, and there's individual leaves, it's, it's amazing, your eyes are open, and you're like, wow, I've seen something, well, that's my hope for today, my hope for today, that there's gonna be some people whose eyes are open to see something, and the thing that I want you to see is Jesus, I want you to see him more clearly than you've ever seen him in your life. Right now, you may have a vision of Jesus, but you're squinting at best. And what God's going to do for us in Colossians chapter 1 is open our eyes. And that's where we're going. I shot a little video while we were traveling back. I want to share this with you real quick. So I'm going to tell you what this is. I actually meant to show this earlier, but I've always thought we celebrate better than anybody. We have work to do. That was a praise service at one of the services where people were accepting Christ, and so it was really cool. I meant to show that earlier. Sorry. But uh, can you show the other This is the one I actually referred to right now. (coughs) Hey, guys. I am in Turkey. Yeah. We are on a return trip trying to get back to you guys for Sunday, and our mission trip from Uganda got routed through here, and we have had to stay overnight in Turkey. So I thought I'd take an opportunity while I'm standing here to talk to you. We're in a series called Everyday Disciple. So why is it important that I film from here? Well, it's because Paul, when he is writing the letters to Galatia, to Ephesus, and to Colossae, this is the country that those cities were in. This is literally where he's writing to, to say like, your faith isn't just theoretical. Like when you recognize the supremacy of Christ, when you center your life around Jesus, it's going to affect how you walk through life, how you interact in your marriage and with your kids, how you interact in your work and with your neighbors. And every step that you take as you walk through your life, here's how your faith is going to be lived out in order to honor and glorify God. This is where Paul was writing to. And you and I are who Paul is writing to, to remind us to walk through our faith every single day and live it out for Jesus. I'll see you guys Sunday. The reason I want to show you that is when we filmed this, we were standing in the shadow of a mosque. Turkey in that area that Paul was writing to is no longer considered a Christian nation. And the reason that it no longer is considered a Christian nation is because the people of God forgot how to walk like God. They forgot how to share who Christ is with the world around them. And darkness invaded. And we never want to see that happen. And so God sent us out as disciples. Let me tell you a little bit about Colossians. It's a very short letter. It's written to the church and to the followers in Colossae. It's written approximately 60 AD by a guy named Paul. Most of us have heard his name before. There are many people at this day and time who are still alive who saw Jesus raised from the dead. It's about 100 miles from Ephesus where Paul had planted a church. Now, Paul never went to Colossae, at least as far as we know, but the impact of the gospel made it there. And at the time he writes, their church is following Jesus. They're growing in their faith, but there is a problem. And the problem is that there are some people who are coming into the church and they are threatening the purity of the gospel. And the same thing happens in our lives today. Specifically, what was that threat? It's a group called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics had two kind of pillars that they founded their belief on. And the first one was this, is that Jesus was less than God. Like, he's fine. He's somewhere in the rank of angels somewhere but he's not God. And the second thing that they were founded upon is the word Gnostic is the original word Gnosko. It means to know or secret knowledge. In other words, they would say that in a preaching like this, that 95, 96% of the room is going to get Jesus light out of this message. Like you're going to get 101, you're going to get the basics, but four or 5% of you are going to get the cheat code, the secret sauce. The secret doorway of understanding that only a few people get. This is why we get fascinated by things in the Christian world, like the Da Vinci Code when that movie came out. To make it all about signs and mysteries and all this stuff that you can dig up and find new revealed truth, 80 million people in the U.S. watched that movie. And I'll tell you why that's important for us to know is because the devil wants to get us chasing a secret doorway. He wants to get us chasing a secret doorway because if he can get us chasing a phantom, a myth, a mist, then he can keep us away from the word of God that has the power of God and is about the person of God that transforms our lives. So he's attacking, they, they are attacking Jesus. And so what Paul is gonna do in the first chapter of Colossae is he is gonna write the doctrine of Jesus with greater fullness than any other epistle in the New Testament. Why should you be interested in this? Well, Because it's going to answer some things. It's going to answer who Jesus is, but it's also going to answer some existential questions that we often have in our life. Who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? So there's three main ideas that we're going to look at as we look through chapter one. And the first one is that Jesus is everything. Raise your hand if you're a part of everything. There you go. Most of you got it. You're a part of everything, which means... Jesus is everything. You are created by Jesus, which inherently gives you your value. You were also created for Jesus, which inherently gives you your purpose. That is who you are, and that is why you are here. We've just answered two existential questions that the world has asked for decades. Not only is Jesus everything, everything Jesus is, is in you. Like, there is so much power in that, it should have been mind-blowing for me to simply say it out loud. Everything Jesus is, is in you. You are in him, and he is in you. You are packed with power. And not your power, his power. And the third thing that we're gonna see in this is that when you give your life to Jesus, Jesus changes everything. When Paul writes this, he writes from prison. And yet he's gonna write to say, I am in Christ. And you gotta imagine, the guards that are around him are going, no, dude, bro, you are not in Christ. You are in jail, That's where you are. But here's something so powerful, I don't want you to miss it. See, there is something more powerful about you than your location or circumstances. There are no circumstances that can stop God from doing exactly what God intends to do. And Paul got that. I've broken this sermon really into three parts, and that's predominantly because I could have preached three completely different messages, so I'm going to preach three messages to you very fast. Good luck. Here we go. Chapter 1, verse 7. He says, you learned it from Epipras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. Verse 8, and who also told us of your What? Your love in the Spirit. So let's look at a couple of things here. First of all, what Spirit is he talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Let me give you a working definition of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the presence of God working directly in our lives to make our purpose possible. The Holy Spirit is the presence of God working in our lives to make our purpose possible. He says, I recognize the Spirit in your love. He says, I want you to love one another But that love is not gonna be possible without the power of the Holy Spirit because it's not some regular earthly feelings-based love. He's gonna say, I want you to love your enemies. I want you to do good to those who hate you. I want you to love those who hurt you. I want you to love those who curse you. That is a love that looks different than most Hallmark movies. Would you agree? And he says, if you're going to do that, if you're gonna love those that hate you, love those that are your enemies, you're gonna need the Holy Spirit active in your life to make that possible. And so Paul is excited because he says, I've heard about the love you have, and you're loving with the impossible kind of love, which means you are filled with and being used by the Holy Spirit of God. And he's excited about it. He says, you've got a superpower. The problem in our churches today is that we have let our superpower become our secret identity. It was never supposed to be a secret identity. Can you imagine Can you imagine if Spider-Man, imagine Spider-Man. Imagine he gets bit by a radioactive spider. He wakes up the next day. He can shoot webs and climb walls and tells no one. Doesn't change his life at all. He would go, well, that's dumb. Exactly. If the Holy Spirit has moved into your life because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and he has saved you by faith, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, how insane is it? That the world would not know, that we would tell no one, and that we would live with a secret identity instead of living revealing the superpower of the Holy Spirit in our life. Verse 9, for this reason, since the day that we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continuously ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through the wisdom and understanding of the Spirit gives. Now, when we hear God's will, we tend to think answers to specific questions. Um, Who should I date? Who should I marry? What job should I take? Where should I move? And I'm not saying that God doesn't want to help reveal some of those, but that's not what he's talking about here. He says, I'm going to need wisdom to understand God's will for how to love people. I need the knowledge of God's will to love others with wisdom that the spirit gives. How many of you have ever loved somebody where you have to go, man, I need some special, I need some knowledge to know how to love this person because they're a challenge. That's what he's talking about. He goes on to say this, verse 10, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. Anybody want to live a life worthy of the Lord in here? He goes, if you want to live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Can you imagine that being your testimony? Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. He says, if you want to live a life worthy of God, you've got to offer other people the same grace that's been given to you. If you want to to live a life worthy of God, you've got to show love to people, the same love that is shown to you. He wants you to bear fruit. We know the the bear fruit, like the the passage of the fruit of the Spirit. What is the very first fruit of the Spirit listed? Love. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He says, that's what should be pouring out of your life it's not the love of an emotion it's not the love of a feeling it's the love of an action it's the love of a choice that i choose to love somebody who might even be considered to us unlovable but i'm gonna love them with the love of the lord verse 11 being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience why why great endurance and patience because loving people is not easy Who's married in here? Raise your hand. I'm not asking for testimonies. I'm just saying, have you ever in your marriage had this thought or said it out loud, if we're being honest? My wife has said to me on multiple occasions, and I get it, Jason, I love you, but I don't like you right now, right? She is saying, I need patience and endurance to love That knucklehead I'm married to. If we struggle loving the person we love the most in this life, how much more patience and endurance will we need in loving others? And that's coming from the Holy Spirit. Verse 12, And giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves You know, church, it was was so powerful to watch people being rescued right and left when we were in Uganda, and I'm sitting there thinking, we have infinitely, as many, if not more lost people in the U.S., why have we become so comfortable with the idea that my neighbor is living in the dominion of darkness and going to hell? we've become far too comfortable with the reality that people around us are going to hell. And we need to stand up and do something about it, filled with the Holy Spirit, to be a part of the rescuing work of God. What does it look like to be in the dominion of darkness? Well, this is Satan's domain. And a few things I wrote down about darkness, it lulls us to sleep. It deceives us. We think things are there that are not, and vice versa. It depresses us. It it emotionally attacks us. Also, the darkness of the world fascinates us. It intrigues us to see, oh, what's there? Maybe maybe that'll be fun if I go down that road. And it gives us a boldness, but it's not a divine boldness from God. It's a boldness of self. Darkness convinces us to put something on the throne of our life, and the person that it puts there usually is me, to worship me. I love how Charles Spurgeon said this. This is his quote. He says, beloved, we are still tempted by Satan, but we are not under his power. Can I get a good Amen. He is not under his power. We have to fight with him. We have to fight with him. But we are not slaves. He is not our king. He has no rights over us. We do not obey him. We will not listen to his temptations. I love that quote. See, in contrast, the kingdom of the son that he loves is a kingdom where we are awake it is a kingdom where we recognize truth and live in it. It is a kingdom where we live life to the abundance. It is a kingdom that compels us and others to follow God. It is a kingdom of boldness that is not anchored to self, but it is anchored to Jesus Christ. Verse 14, it says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Our hope, our redemption is not in the things of earth. Which frees us up to use the things that we have on this earth to do what God calls us to do for Him. And what would happen in this church, if just this church, if everybody in this room that calls themselves a believer, what would happen if all of us decided today to use the superpower of the Holy Spirit that lives in us? I think it would change everything. And I know you've heard this in church, and there are some people who are like, oh, Jason's coming off a mission trip. He's so excited. I'm so grateful for him but so naive. Filled with his power. Let's go fight against the devil. I don't think it's naive at all, church. I really don't. It's happened before. Let me give you a little history lesson. 50 years after Paul wrote this letter, a Roman emperor named Trajan issued an edict to round up all the Christians and imprison them. He's like, there's this groundswell of people, it's this kind of grassroots movement, let's go gather those up we'll put them in prison and we can shut this movement down the governor of Turkey where I filmed that video from said okay, no problem, I'll get started and so he took off to go arrest all these people in Colossae, Ephesus, Galatia all these areas he found out there was a lot more of them than he thought it had become a problem so he writes back to the emperor and these are his words translated in English the number, the number involved for many persons of every age, every rank, and also of both sexes are and will be endangered for the contagion of this superstition has spread not only to our cities, but to our villages and to our farms. In other words, if I may paraphrase, he wrote back to the emperor, dude, this is not a fringe group. There's a whole heck of a lot more of them than we thought there were. What should I do? He goes on to say this the sum and substance of their fault. So here's what I can find against them. Uh, They meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsibly a hymn to Christ. They gather on Sundays, which is a work day for them in their culture. And before the work day starts, they gathered and sang a song responsibly to Christ. Um, And they bound themselves by an oath. And the emperor probably thought, oh, here's where I get them. What's the oath? Uh, they have made an oath not to commit crime, fraud, theft, or adultery, and not to falsify their truth. I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who they called deaconesses. But I discovered nothing but excessive superstition. What superstition? Superstition. The superstition that was motivating them that they would not back down from, these two women that they were torturing, was that Jesus Christ had really lived, had really died, and had risen from the dead and changed the world. That's what they wouldn't shut up talking about. That's what they sang about. That's what they gathered. That's what they talked about. Their crime was they're doing good for others. Um, They're committed to never letting the superpower of the Holy Spirit in them become a secret identity. Let me tell you what happened. Within 200 years, the empire that had executed Jesus Christ became known as the Holy Roman Empire. And the nation that killed Christ was filled with more Christ followers than pagans. They did it without power. They did it without political Rain, they did it without religious rights. They did it without freedom. All they had was the love of Jesus and the gospel. Part two. Something is going to be number one in your life. The Gnostics, they would teach about Jesus. He was prominent in their teaching. He was not preeminent. Preeminent meaning he was not number one. See, when you get confused about who Jesus is, you'll get confused about absolutely everything else in your life. And they would teach that Jesus wasn't enough, but the gospel teaches us that Jesus plus nothing still equals everything. And so they wrote a hymn, and they would sing this hymn. It was compact, it was clear, it was an explanation of who Jesus is and why he should be first in our life. Here's the hymn. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold what, church? See, he's attacking the Gnostics with what they said about Jesus. The Gnostics believed that God could not come in contact with the physical world because the physical world was evil. So they saw Jesus as watered down and less than God. Today there are whole denominations that still teach that. The Jehovah's Witness, for example, will teach a similar version of who Jesus is. But this says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It means he is the exact representation of God. He is fully God and fully human. He is both divinity and humanity. He is the firstborn over all creation. Let me ask this. How many of you in this room, firstborns? How many of you are lastborns? How many of you are middle children that God loves most? Yeah, Yeah, there you (laughs) are. (laughs) Now, I always tell people, I've got my sister, she's here, she's 10 years younger than I am. And I tell her all the time, she was raised by different human beings than I was raised by. See, your first kids get the least sanctified version of you. Like, you're still the biggest mess of your life for your first child. By the time you get 10 years down the, down the road, my sister gets parents that are floating on clouds and doing, like, they figured some stuff out. But with me and my older brother, mm-mm, it was an experiment. Okay. And you know what I'm talking about. You were there. When you, when you have a kid, the first time you have a kid and you drop the binky, the seed, the whatever you stick in their mouth, you drop it on the ground. You're like, Oh my gosh, we're going to sterilize it. And you're going to, you boil everything in your house just to be safe. And then you put it back in their mouth. And if they drop it again, you do the same thing. Like when people say, I can't hold your baby. You're like, bathe in hand sanitizer first. Like you can't touch my baby. But the, the pacifier thing is one of the most clear things to watch the, elevi- the evolution of a parent because on child one they sterilize it on child two they lick it clean put it back in their mouth by child three you let the dog lick it like it's a, like it's it's you don't care anymore you've given up you're like look I've seen them come in contact with everything nothing they're gonna be fine we're gonna build the immune system like that's what they're gonna do listen When he says Jesus is firstborn, here's what I need us to understand. Because some people go, well, he's not the first one born. What What does that mean? In the Bible, firstborn is not a reference necessarily to timing. It is a reference to rank, position. For example, if you look at the Old Testament story of Jacob and Esau. Esau had the rank of firstborn, but he sells his rank to his brother, Jacob. He sells it for stew, which is a dumb thing to sell your rank for. Chili, maybe. (laughs) With beans, no, okay? But he sells it for that. In Psalm uh, 89, the Bible says that Jesus is the firstborn among the kings of the earth. Well, he's not the first king that's ever stood on the earth. It's not talking about timing. He's talking about rank, that he's king over all kings, that he is the best. See, he created all things, visible and invisible, and in him they hold together. The stars, moon, galaxy, planets, mountains, oceans, animals, the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees and the moon up above. And the thing called love. Anybody? All right, so he made all of that. As a matter of fact, I want you to listen to what he holds together. In the cosmos, I don't even know what a comet is. Okay, we've seen these things, have a big long tail. Do you know the tail of the comet can extend up to 10,000 miles But if you bottled all the particles of the comet, it would take up less than one cubic inch of space. And God stretches it out and makes it luminescent for over 10,000 miles. Saturn's rings are 500,000 miles in circumference, but they were only a foot thick, and God holds them in perfection. If the sun was the size of a beach ball and you put it on top of the Empire State Building, the nearest stars would be in Australia. And yet God holds the cosmos in his hands without sweat or stress. He created time. He knows the past, present, and future, and we don't. We don't because we're inside of it. He does because he is outside of it, and he made it so he can see all of it. The human chromosome, you and I have tons of, each one contains 20 billion bits of information. One of our chromosomes would equal 4,000 volumes of the average novel. Just one. And God holds all that in perfect harmony without batting an eye. Jesus could walk on water. He could heal. He could cast out demons. He had authority over the spiritual and the physical world because he made it all. And he's not just the source. He's the sustainer. See, science for the last 50 plus years has been trying to figure out how everything holds together. And they've come up with conveyant bonds and metallic bonds and genomes and quantum electrodynamics and all these other things. And many of you have heard about the cell adhesion molecule called laminin, which is the rebar of our bodies. And we're held together by millions of microscopic pieces of this protein cell adhesion molecule. And if you zoom in on it, it forms the shape of a cross which means that you and I are held together by billions of microscopic crosses because in Christ, he holds all things together. Everything in creation points to a creator. So let me ask you a question. Do you believe that's true? Do you believe that God created everything and sustains everything? Can I get a yes or no? You believe that. Then can I ask this? If we believe that, then why every time we hit a stressful situation do we fear that God can't sustain us? Like, he's not stressing over the cosmos, but he has no idea how to handle my day today. Does that make sense, church? Not at all. See, this is what's giving us hope and something to hang on to. This is what's giving us, a... listen, I'm gonna tell you. There was times on our trip back here from Uganda where there were things we did not like. I am not going to tell you that your pastor did not get into an argument with multiple Ugandan officials, because I did. at some point we had just the reality that our God is bigger than all this and we will trust him to control it and he got us home and he got us home safely but we had to be in his hands see whatever you're going through I don't know what it is but I do know this he is enough he is enough for it verse 18 and he is the head of the body the church So he's first over all creation, and then it says he's first over the church. He's the head of the church. I did some study. I don't know if you guys know this. Heads, very important. Oh, that's not groundbreaking for any of you. If you do not have a head, you are? If you have more than one, you're a monster. Like, that's how this goes. So there is one head of the church, and his name is not Jason. His name is Jesus. Jesus. And we have to always be committed to here at this church that the head of our church is Jesus Christ. That's who we follow. There is one head and it's him. It says he is the beginning, the firstborn among the dead so that everything might have, he might have supremacy. Uh, Like other people had risen to life, we'd seen him raise Lazarus back to life, but those people rose to life and then died again and went on. I don't know if that's resurrection or resuscitation. It's one of them. But when Jesus died, he rose And he never died again. And that's different. He masters life and death. He owns life, which means he can give it to whom he chooses. Verse 19 For God is pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You want to know, as some people ask, they're like, ah, the church is so weird. Why does it got to talk about blood all the time? Because without it, we are doomed. So we talk about the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. See, the biggest problem in the world is not political. It's not social. It is spiritual and it is relational. See, the good news is so important for us here. There's a gap between us. The Gnostics believe that, but the Gnostics would get it wrong. They would say there's a secret knowledge that if you walk with us as Gnostics, you can earn God's favor. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is there's a gap between us and God that is created by our sin. And you cannot run fast enough or jump far enough to get there. There's no bridge you can build. You cannot achieve it. It is impossible. As a matter of fact, it's not as though you're on this side and alive and trying to figure out how to get to that side. On this side, without Christ, the Bible says you are dead in your trespasses and sin. So you're a dead person needing to get to life. And dead people, not real useful at going places. They can do nothing on their own. But God, in his incredible love for us, comes across the chasm, bridges the gap, comes to the people who cannot get to him, and he grabs them up, and he takes them to the place that only he can have us go. That's what the scripture is teaching us. That is the gospel. He is the atonement. There was a payment required for our sin. There was a debt that had to be paid, and the atonement means that he paid it. The payment for sin is death, so he died. He paid that debt to repair and reconcile us to God. Verse twenty-one. Once you were alienated from God. You'll the question here. He talks about being. He talks about creation and the cosmos. Then he talks about the church. And now, who is he talking about? You and me. Once you, Jason. Were alienated from God. You were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. But now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and freedom from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. You were alienated. You were an enemy of God, while we were yet sinners, while we were at our worst, while while we were in open rebellion, while we were an adversary and an enemy of God, Christ loved us then. He gave us hope and hope and a home. We went from foreigners to family, from enemies to adopted, from objects of wrath to objects of affection. When it says in verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, um, our most accurate translation today would be the word icon. As a matter of fact, if you look at Genesis, it says, let us make man in our icon, in our image. That we are supposed to be the icon, the representation of God filled with the Holy Spirit so that the world around us sees compassion and kindness, humility and gentleness, patience, forgiveness. That we let our, our light in us shine in such a way that people around us would see our good deeds and praise who? Our Father who is in heaven. That when they see it in us, they know it's not from us. They know it is a reflection of God through us that we desperately want the world to see and experience the light and rescue from darkness. In 1893, there was a thing called the World's Fair in Chicago, Illinois. It was huge. Biggest one that had ever happened in history. 27 million people attended. Many things were introduced there. The Ferris wheel. Anybody ever heard of that? Yep. Um, moving walkways introduced at that one. Anybody ever seen those? You know, you go to the airport, caution. The walkway is ending. That thing, they experienced that there. Also, things that were uh, shared there for the first time. Juicy fruit, anybody? Yeah, you can admit that in church. PBR, anybody? Less hands, but you know what I'm talking about. All right, so um, that was all introduced there. Also was the World Parliament of Religions. The World's Fair in Chicago, 1893. They said, if we'll get all the different religions together and we'll get them to agree on everything, the problem is we don't believe the same things. And so there was a pastor in Chicago. They said, we need you to come speak to this. Get everybody on the same page. His name is D.L. Moody. They called him and they said, go in there and curse the darkness. And Moody said, there's a time to curse the darkness. But here's what he said. and I love this. If I go... I'm going to proclaim the light. I will say so much about Jesus that no one will want anything else. See, he understood what it meant to be the representation of God. The last part I want to look at is what it means to be everyday disciples, starting in verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. Paul's in prison, chained up, When was the last time you were in suffering and went, whew, what a great time to rejoice. He says, I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. There's something he has access to that we're struggling to understand. Matter of fact, I'll illustrate it this way. I've read a story, uh, it's about a lady named Kathy Boom. And Kathy Boone was homeless. She went from homeless shelter to homeless shelter to homeless shelter. She passed away in January of 2020. And when she passed away, they discovered that her mother, who had died obviously preceding her, had left her money. She had $884,000 sitting in a bank account. She had life changing resources at her disposal and never accessed them. That is our world that we have resurrection resources available to us that many people fail to access. And because of that, they live defeated. They they live defeated because our sinful nature keeps running up the score on us and reminding us how bad we are. But listen, if God can deal with a dead Lazarus, if he can walk out of his own grave from dead Jesus to living Jesus, then your marriage, your home, your work, your lives, he can deal with those things too. We just need to learn how to access this power. Jesus at the cross says the great exchange, one of the most irrational, incredible, amazing, beautiful exchanges that we'll ever experience. On the cross, Jesus says, I want you to give me all of your worst and I will give you all of my best in return. He gives us a language in that moment that we can understand. It's not a language of ritual and tradition. It's a language of relationship. It's not a language of performance. It's a language of grace. It's a language that teaches us what it looks like to walk hand in hand, arm in arm with our Father daily. And because of that, we can live with anticipation. We can anticipate that your suffering will one day come to an end and that whatever you endure for now has a purpose. That was one of my favorite things of being in Uganda. I mean, you're talking poverty. I won't get into full description of it, but I mean, it is poverty and yet they would get together and worship and they would sing songs every time we saw them gather reminding them God's got more for us there's an anticipation in them that this wasn't their home God is leading them to his kingdom as a matter of fact it's it's the reason I'm wearing this shirt today everywhere we went in Africa this is what we were called, Zungu. It means many things. Most of them are not flattering. Basically, what it really means more than anything is foreigner. This is not your home. So at first, it was kind of weird to hear constantly. We get called that, I don't know, like a billion times. But at one point, it just became a good reminder, at least for me, this isn't our home. And I don't mean Africa. I mean this world. It is not our home. We live with the anticipation of heaven with our heavenly father. He says in verse 25, I've become its servant. That's the word diakonos, where we get the word deacon. By the compassion God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The, The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. The mystery that he's talking about is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel. And he's telling us, never settle for being a convert when God's called you to be a disciple. Being a disciple means giving your life to the word of God and to the teachings of Jesus and to bring other people along. You cannot call yourself a disciple of Christ if you refuse to disciple somebody. Like it is not a designation of office or position, it is an action. That I am being filled up and poured into by others and I am filling up and pouring into those around me. And there is no such thing as a disciple that does not do both of those things. He says, go and make disciples every day so that they can see something amazing. What is it they're going to see? Verse 27 To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, the resurrection. He identifies what it is, which is Christ in you, the hope of what, church? The hope of glory. That the Christian hope is not simply living 85 years and leaving a great legacy, although that's wonderful. The Christian um, hope is not political gain. It's not a country that is following Christian doctrine. The Christian hope is resurrection from the dead. It is not good, bad people becoming good people. It is dead people becoming alive. That's the mystery. He says in verse 28, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I strenuously contend i act i move i work for a lot of us we feel defeated it's because we are not accessing the power of the holy spirit that is in us because only then will we fulfill the purposes god created us for the holy spirit is like god's bank card And when you access it, you get experience and receive all the riches of the glory of God. And I don't mean earthly riches. I mean eternal riches. And we connect through an act of the will, by choosing, by surrendering daily. God has an expectation for you and for me if we are going to be everyday disciples that there is allegiance that we give to him to live the life that he created us to live. Maybe for some of you, you've never experienced that because you've never connected to the source of Jesus Christ. And, and I'm just going to be honest with you because I'm, I'm still I'm tired. Um, we've, we've tried to, often to do this, and for good reason, a very loving and polite and gentle way. And I just want to say it a little bit differently today. If you haven't yet given your life to Christ, what in the world are you waiting for? Like, what's the downside? Like, you're like, well, but you understand, I gotta get good, I gotta fix this, I gotta get this right, and then I'll give my life to Jesus. You just described insanity. You don't get better on your own to come to Jesus. You get Jesus, and he makes you better. (laughs) Stop trying to strive by doing it on your own. He says you're gonna contend strenuously with the energy Christ powerfully works in you. You need him first. And so if you've sat in church forever, holding on to pews and chairs, never wanting to respond, if you have maybe an arrogance or pride or ego said, I don't want to ask for somebody's help, whatever the case, why would you wait? Why wait a moment past today? You have no guarantee of the next breath. None. So why put off? What God has called you to. Well, listen, we don't want to be a church that's playing games here. Church is a stupid hobby. If you go to church as a hobby, get a better hobby. But if you come to church because God has radically transformed your life, and you want to live in him, and you want to serve him, and you want to honor him, and you want to tell the world about Jesus Christ, the hope of glory, church is not a hobby. It's a relationship with God and God's people and it fuels us and empowers us to go out and be on mission to the world. So if you've never done that, I'm gonna tell you at the end of our service, our prayer team is gonna be up here and I would just challenge you, do not leave today. Do not, listen, and I don't mean this to sound mean, okay? Don't be a coward today. I know it's hard. I know it takes guts. But there will be an enormous celebration in heaven if just one of you We'll say, today, I stop running. Today, I stop wrestling with God. I remember one time when the church I grew up in in Kentucky, we were having a service, and a man came up who was one of our leaders in our church. who was a deacon in our church. He'd been there for a long time, and he was finally fell under conviction that he had never surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. And he walked up to our pastor, and I was standing next to our pastor, Brother Tommy Tackett, just an old country preacher, the deacon walks up and he goes, I know I need to give my life to Jesus, but what does that mean for me as a deacon, as a leader in our church? Da, 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 da. And Brother Tommy, in his just little country wisdom, he looked at him and he goes, You know what the best kind of deacon is? And the guy goes, What? And he goes, a Saved one. <laughs> he said, Man, let's celebrate that. I don't care how long you've been going through the motions. Going through the motions does not make you a believer. Surrendering your life to Jesus does. Maybe there's some of you in here, you are a believer, but you're not living in the power of the Holy Spirit. You have not made it an act of your will to walk daily as a disciple. Can we have the courage to commit, church? Let's don't be wishy-washy about this. Let's commit to God. The reason I'm passionate about this, the reason our church is passionate about this the reason every leader in our church will be passionate about this if you talk to them is we truly believe this is a matter of life and death in the church we also believe god is not done god is not done god is not done, god is not done. Here is more that he wants to accomplish through us, through his people. There are new people to reach, new families to reach, new generations to reach. There are nations that he calls us to impact. But in order to do that, he must be the one we love the most. He must be the center of all things, first place in our obedience, which means that he is the first consideration in every single thing that you do. He must be first place in our priorities, which means his agenda rules our life. Jesus does not now and has never deserved our leftovers. So let's make a commitment, church, to put him and keep him first. Can I get a good amen this morning? God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. God, I pray as we go into a time of worship, God, that we would not need to set up worship. That having heard everything that you say about who you are and who you are to us and what you've done for us. God, that worship would erupt from us immediately. That right now, God, I almost pray like people are in anticipation of this next moment where they get to cry out, praise to our great God. God, I pray in in my state, if I have said anything confusing, God, I pray through your Holy Spirit that you will make clear anything that I have made messy because I do not want to get in the way of anyone. I pray for those that are in the room right now that have never given their life to Christ, that even during these songs or after the service, they would seek out one of our staff, one of our leaders, go to our prayer team in the corner of this room because there's nothing more important they can do with their life today. God, give them the courage to do that. For the believers in this room who have not been walking as a daily disciple to you, and we've all been through those seasons, I certainly have. God, can we have the courage to walk with you every day, to grab hold of The Holy Spirit you've put inside of us, God, and live in that power. There's a superpower inside of us called the Holy Spirit and God, let's not diminish it and make our Christianity a secret identity. God, we want to live in and follow in and anchor ourselves to your truth and your love, Jesus Christ, the hope of glory. And we want to tell the world because our God is not done. We love you. We trust you in Jesus' name, amen.